If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review, or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible. The Terrifying Lies podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Terrifying Lies podcast. My name is Craig Nibo, your host. Today, we're setting sail on a journey to the high seas, exploring the world of pirates and rock and roll. Pirates have always intrigued me. There's just something about those swashbuckling adventurers that captures the imagination. I mean, who doesn't love a good pirate story? In fact, my fascination with these buccaneers runs so deep that the band I play in, called Rust Monster, has released not one, but two original pirate-themed albums, and where we write and record many other genres of music and perform in different guises, the pirate version of Rust Monster always comes back. It seems that we're booked at least three to five times to put on our tricorns and get up on stage to entertain huge crowds of pirate lovers. A while ago, I designed a game called Chops, the rock and roll board game. You can get a copy of the game on my website, craignibo.com. This game feels a bit like Spinal Tap meets Adventure Time. I spent a great deal of effort world-building for this game, including bios for scores of characters, venues, devices, and more. Some of the characters from the game intrigued me so much that I wrote stories about them, such as The Beat Farmer, earlier in this season of Terrifying Lies. I'm afraid I spilled a bit of my pirate into my rock and roll and a little bit of my rock and roll into my pirate, as some of the characters from this game have nautical leanings. Today, I give you the origin story of some of these rock stars, how they rose from obscurity to become a mega band that would leave an indelible mark on the world of music. Let's cast off, shall we? I now give you Blunderbusted, part one of four. Written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. Blunderbusted, historical account written by Craig Nibo. For being a mid-sized venue, the Greased Beast drew some of the hottest bands in the country. Its proximity to New York City and the novelty of its being an old United States Navy Eagle-class patrol ship converted to music venue and bar helped. Bands who played the Greased Beast had one thing in common, chops. Everybody knew that Mikey Muscularri, the venue's manager, didn't tolerate rock and roll lackeys. His self-proclaimed musical elitism was the stuff of legend, even though the guy couldn't himself play an instrument. You hit the stage at precisely nine and don't even think about playing one note after ten. Tonight is Skinning Tuesday's night, a stage manager said to Dusty Cannon and Barry Guns. Both of them stood against a wall as the woman pointed a stern finger at them, her eyes clamped down to slits. None of us are convinced that you belong here. What kind of band name is Sharkskin anyways? The best way to see that you're banned permanently from the Greased Beast would be to make the mistake of thinking that even one member of that audience is here to see you. Do I make myself clear? Dusty and Barry nodded in unison. 
The stage manager wheeled around on one of her tall heels and clocked away, leaving the sole members of Sharkskin leaning against the wall in silence. Barry and Dusty turned to each other, twin smiles blooming on their faces. They both knew that they had no right to play the hot venue, much less open up for a band so well-known as Skinning Tuesday. But Charlie Biscuit, their manager, had hyperextended his silver tongue and landed them the gig. Let's do it, Dusty said, checking the time on her phone. It was 8.59 p.m. Time to rock. They walked on stage to their drum sets. Dusty mounted her signature bladed throne, took a pair of sticks from a dispenser mounted to the side of her seat, and looked over her bizarrely large drum kit at her musical partner. Barry finished adjusting the height of his snare drum, then winked back at her. The crowd meandered, drinks in hands, chatting, generating an undercurrent of noise, despondent of the fact that Sharkskin had mounted the stage. That was all right, Dusty thought. She and Barry would win them over. Dusty started in, banging down the rhythm backbone of Sharkskin's opening song, I'll Kill Haul Your Sorry Hide. It started well, good sound, good energy, until she failed on a complicated fill just 12 bars into the song. She tripped herself up as she ran from the high toms to the lows in a 36th note romp. The fill marked Dusty's cue to start playing, but her goof caused him to make a lopsided entrance. Dusty looked up at the crowd. Had she and Barry recovered from their bad takeoff? She winced when she noticed that a good many of the audience had finally begun to pay attention, but the looks on their faces ranged from annoyance to outrage. As Dusty's cue to sing came up, her lyrics lit off like a sparrow from its nest. She couldn't remember her opening stanza. She shot a panicked glance at Barry as her cue came and went. He shrugged back at her, his expression saying, Work it out, girl. Eight bars vamped by before she remembered the words. She sang, her voice cracking unexpectedly on her first word. You saw the red sky this morning. You know what's in the offing. There's no quarter for the guilty. There's no pardon from the hemp. They were off to a rough start, but Dusty felt that if they didn't lose heart, they could save the show. They'd recovered from worse train wrecks. She watched the crowd for any sign of appreciation. Even a lone dancer would lift her spirits, but the audience mulled about at best. At worst, some of them stood in clumps, pointing and laughing at her and Barry guns. Dusty and Barry stuck the landing, the end of their opening number, with a series of well-rehearsed hits. At the end of the song, where there should have been applause, a dull pratter of a thousand despondent bar patrons in a hundred conversations answered Sharkskin's big finish. Somebody spoke up. You suck! Get off the stage! Dusty looked into the wings and spotted Charlie Biscuit, Sharkskin's manager, with his open collar and a gold medallion hanging among the wiry hairs of his chest. Charlie pumped a fist and a smile back at her. She looked the other direction and caught the stage manager, who had issued her stern warning before the show. The woman stood hard in the wings, her arms crossed over her chest, her expression intense. Dusty tried to crack the stage manager's crust with a smile. The stage manager didn't smile back. Barry clicked off the second tune, another nautical joint called Fair Winds and Following Seas. It was his turn to sing. He didn't do much better than Dusty, cracking the highs and growling the lows, sounding more animal than human. Barry had a cold. He'd tried to stave it off back in the green room with a throat-clearing remedy of saltwater ginger and turmeric. He'd choked the evil concoction down and proclaimed himself ready, but judging by his lack of pitch and broken tones, been long from good to go. 
Two of them suffered through the second song and ended with a series of drummer-to-drummer trades. The final kapow of twin snares fell away to the same despondent milling from the crowd. The man who had vocalized his review after the opening number stood close to the stage. He put both hands on the platform and shouted, You stink! Get off the stage before I call the stench police! Dusty looked up at the stage manager. She shook her head from side to side, her lips pursed. Dusty tried on a beckoning expression, but the woman offered no sympathy. She uncrossed her arms, frowned, gestured for Sharkskin to clear the stage. Dusty and Barry dismounted their kits and walked to the wings. The heckler followed them off with a chain of drunken epithets. Others joined into the fray with a barrage of, Yeah, mans, darn rights, and when do we get to hear real bands? The stage manager caught Dusty and Barry backstage. I should have trusted my instincts. You can rest assured that your little band, Skinny Shark, did you say? will not be invited back to the Greased Beast. Consider this both your debut and farewell performances. She pushed by them, her heels clocking a staccatoed rhythm as she stalked away. Dusty and Barry moved deeper into the wings, their heads hanging low. You want to get out of here? Barry asked. We need to collect our kits after the show, Dusty said, hardly able to think about going out into the house with that audience. Hey, a woman said from the shadows. Dusty and Barry turned around. Out of the dim stepped none other than the lead singer of Skinning Tuesday, Melody Blackheart. She wore her signature black eye patch and red and white striped leggings. No way, Barry said, unable to stop his mouth from hanging open. This was the first time Sharkskin had opened for a national act, and he hadn't expected to see any members of Skinning Tuesday at all, much less have the lead singer hail them. They were pretty rough on you out there, Melody said. That's an understatement, Dusty said. If they'd brought pitchforks and torches, they would have used them. Ah, don't take it so hard. We went through the same thing when we started out. Skinning Tuesday? Barry asked. Yeah, we were nobody's once, just like you are. Melody covered her mouth. Oh, I'm sorry that came out wrong. I didn't mean it the way I said it. Truth hurts, man, Barry said. I like your sound. Never heard an all drummer and singer band before. I think what you have is fresh. You can't be serious. Dusty said. I am, Melody said, and I like the nautical themes in your music. I guess you could say that I have a pirate heart. Every time I try to ride a rock shanty, the guys shoot me down. They keep saying they're more Viking punk than pirate rock. That sucks, Barry said. Tours are hard. It's rough spending every waking hour with the same people. Part of me longs for what you have. I wouldn't mind going back to the beginning when we were hungry and pure in our art. Melody stroked her chin. Ah, there I go again. I've said too much. It's nice to know that you haven't lost your artistic integrity, Barry said. Melody flashed him a smile so bright that Barry flecked his eyes away and fought a rushing blush. We're looking forward to hearing your set, Dusty said. Thanks. We'll be doing some stuff off our new unreleased album. Hope you like it. Melody offered a cute little bow, then headed toward the VIP green room. Before she disappeared around the corner, she turned back to Dusty and Barry. You know... Maybe you should watch from backstage. I don't know how keen that audience is going to be at having you join them. Dusty let out a sigh of relief. See you after the show, Melody said. Barry slapped Dusty a five as Melody disappeared around the corner. Dusty Cannon. Drums. Polka chops. Being the daughter of famous accordion player, Dogabart von Adlersflugel, Dusty was raised on the oompa refrains of endless polka. 
With increased pressure on the part of Dilgabart to entice her into following in his footsteps, Dusty became more and more distant from her father. Finally, tension between Dilgabart and Dusty came to a head, and Dusty set off on her own, estranging her father and trading her student model accordion in for a drum kit. Since launching her rocker career, Dusty has made peace with her father. Barry and Dusty didn't stand alone in the wings before skinning Tuesday's show. A few close friends of the band and a gang of super groupies gathered, whispering excited comments back and forth, freshening their makeup, hoping that somehow they'd be noticed by various members of Skinning Tuesday. She's pretty down to earth, Dusty said as she watched the band come out of a portal and walk toward the stage. They stopped near a backstage monitor mixing station for a quick conference with the sound engineer. The audience chanted from the house, Skinning! 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 The band ignored the fan noise and focused on the monitor engineer. Jericho Payne, Skinning's guitar player, tapped on his monitor earbuds, then pointed a stern finger at the sound mixer. He said something that made the engineer raise his hands in an expression of apology. Melody put a hand on Jericho's shoulder and gently pushed him back. She turned to the engineer and spoke. The engineer listened and nodded. She turned to the rest of the band and spoke to them. Gradually, she calmed everyone down. They came to an agreement. Then the band headed toward the stage. Melody winked at Dusty and Barry as she walked by them into the lights. The rest of the band followed her out. Oscar Shinsplint with his vacant stare. Jericho Payne with all of his rage and minty smell. Marblehead, who probably hadn't worn deodorant for weeks. Finally skinning Tuesday's drummer, Karma Cure, who uttered something under her breath as she passed by that chilled both Barry and Dusty. I can't wait until she's gone. The audience erupted as Skinning Tuesday stepped to their marks. Melody raised a microphone to her lips, fixed them with a sexy smile. Who's ready to rock? Cheers. Karma clicked off a tempo, and the band went into their opener, a huge hit from their debut album entitled Wait a Minute Now. The crowd broke into a garden of dancing. They moved with the band's beat song after song without an ounce of flag in their energy. Even from the wings, Dusty and Barry, surrounded by super groupies, couldn't hold still. Barry had to admit Skinning Tuesday played with virtuosity that Sharkskin had yet to attain. They seemed to play flawlessly, as if they were incapable of mistakes. He supposed it came with an eternity of tour dates. Did you catch that? Dusty said, pulling Barry out of his reverie with a tug on his lapel. Dusty pointed at Melody, who was in the middle of a recent hit entitled My Heart's Not Your Shift Grip. Melody had clipped her microphone to its stand. She had her hands on her hips, staring down at one fan in particular. Her lips pursed, her brows netted over her dark eyes. Look who's here, Dusty said, pointing in the direction of Melody's cold stare. Barry followed her gaze and spotted none other than Snorri the Skull Splitter. The man had hit the scene like a cannonball since immigrating from Iceland. He'd cut a couple of songs with another band, both of which had hit the charts and stuck there. Just three months ago, his band had opened for skinning at a Los Angeles venue called Evil McWeevils. At a press conference after the show, he'd openly proclaimed Melody Blackheart as a hack and said that if Skinning Tuesday had any sense, they'd hire him as their new singer. Word was, Snorri had followed skinning for the rest of their tour and engaged in secret meetings with other members of the band. What a loser, Barry said, like he's going to take Melody Blackheart's job. He is pretty to look at, Dusty said. Who says? Check out Karma Cure, Dusty said, flicking her eyes at Skinning Tuesday's drummer. Barry looked up at Karma, just in time to see her bat her eyes, and threw a mock kiss straight at Snorri the Skull Splitter. 
Snorri smiled and crossed his tattooed arms over his ample chest. Not a chance, Barry said, but his voice lacked conviction. Dusty and Barry watched the rest of the show from the wings. Skinning Tuesday gave it up for their fans. They played a two-hour set and then returned to the stage for a double encore before hanging up their instruments and calling it a night. Oscar shin split. Keyboards. Cybernetic parts. Oscar has been obsessed with singularity ever since he watched a super retro movie where a 302 neuron artificial brain was implanted into a Canerhabditis elegens roundworm, causing the creature's movement to be navigated by use of a tuning fork remote control. Everything Oscar does can be classified into three categories of action, in order of priority. One, he shreds on the keys with Skinning Tuesday's rock band. Two, he participates in any available experimental, medical, technical, cybernetic surgery. Three, he engages in the motions of basic survival, food, and sleep. He proudly flaunts the fact that he was the first human to fill a Raymac 305 system's hard drive to capacity by reciting from his internal human memory through an iSCSI cable the hex code stream of a JPEG image of the Bower C power station. The Terrifying Lies Podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. As the band walked backstage, groupies hit them from every angle, asking for autographs and jonesing for kisses from the sweaty rockers. Melody offered a few forced smiles and greetings. She fought her way through the mob. She cut toward the port that led to the VIP green room. Barry tugged on Dusty's elbow. She turned to him an annoyed expression on her face. Let's go, Barry said, thumbing his shoulder in the direction Melody had gone. What, are you crazy? I'm going, Barry said, backing up a step toward the port entrance. Dusty shook her head. Barry backed up another step. You can't. Watch me. Barry turned and moved toward the VIP green room. Dusty clenched her fists, looking both ways, and followed him. Melody Blackheart, vocals, musical purist. Remember Jem and the holograms? Yeah, well, so does Melody. And she's nothing like those hacks. Melody strives to boil music down to its essential bits, screaming guitars and thumping drums, overloaded with crisp, lyrical genius. Melody, born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, spent her early life on the road with the Chattanooga Symphony Orchestra. Though highly influenced by the transformative stylings of the orchestra, her teenaged world forever changed when she first heard rock power ballads by Creed and Nickelback. When Dusty caught up to Barry, he was standing outside the green room waiting for her, an impish smile painted on his face. He raised his fist to the door and winked at Dusty. Don't! Dusty managed to sneak out just before Barry knocked. Come in, girl's voice said from inside. Barry tried the doorknob. It turned. He shot Dusty a glance, then pushed the door open and entered the room. Melody stood at one of many makeup counters, an open duffel bag sitting in front of her. Her back to Barry and Dusty, she drew out a set of sweats, an angry expression on her face. I saw him in the audience again tonight. Do you think I'm going to give up my... Oh, it's you. The anger left her face. She turned around. Do you mind if I get out of these sweaty clothes? Not at all, Barry said. Dusty elbowed him hard enough to make him yell. Melody walked behind a freestanding panel screen. What did you think of the set? I don't mean to go all fanboy on you, but we've been following you guys from the beginning, Barry said. I don't mind if you go fanboy as long as you don't turn into a stalker. Does that really happen? Melody peeked out from behind the panel screen. You'd be surprised. 
Love the new songs, Dusty said. Thanks, I think. Don't repeat this, ever. I'm not entirely on board with the band's direction these days. I've noticed, Barry said. The new album is a bit... Uh, Viking. Melody stopped moving behind the panel screen. Barry thought he heard her utter a curse under her breath. What, did I say something wrong? Barry asked. Melody came out from behind the screen wearing an unflattering suit of gray sweats. No, you didn't. It's just that there are outside influences right now that other members of the band are giving audience. Dusty shot Barry a glance and said, Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Are you talking about Snorri the Skull Splitter? Barry said. Dusty shook her head and made a flicking gesture with one of her hands. Melody sat down on one of the green room's leather couches and pulled on a pair of pink sneakers. I'm not surprised you know about him. He made no effort to conceal the fact that he's after my job. He's a hack, Dusty said. He sings like an angel, Melody said. He's a fool if he thinks he can take your place in Skinning Tuesday. Melody finished tying her shoes and looked up at Barry. Thanks for saying so. She stood up. Look, it's been nice and all, but I got some place I gotta be. She ushered Barry and Dusty toward the door. Just before they left the green room, Barry stopped. Look, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Dusty grabbed Barry's elbow and tugged him toward the door. Melody looked him straight in the eye and cocked her head to the side. If, if what you say is real, you know, about our sound being fresh and about how you would love to go back to the beginning when you were hungry and, and had artistic integrity, I'd like to make a proposition. Barry, Dusty said, tugging even harder on his elbow. Really, I need to get going, Melody said, raising her hands as if she intended to push the two of them out of the green room. Our agent, he's got a silver tongue, Barry said. He's booked us a pretty lucrative gig aboard an alternative passenger cruiser called the Filthy Vicar. Melody stopped pushing at the mention of the Filthy Vicar. I've heard of that ship. I know it isn't the kind of pay you're used to, but with our collective interest in nautical music, maybe we could team up forces and come up with something new. Melody backed away from Barry, but kept her eyes on him. You're full of surprises, aren't you, Mr. Guns? Look, it's probably way below your pay grade, but we're meeting with our agent tomorrow at lunch to discuss the particulars of the gig, and I'm sure he'd be happy to meet you. Melody stroked her chin and looked away from Barry and Dusty. She walked the length of the long counter, running a finger across its scratched surface. She turned toward Barry and intertwined her fingers in front of her. I'm not saying I'm willing to consider a meeting because such a meeting would bring tremendous complexity to an already complex situation. But if I, say, wanted to try a good bull of clam chowder in this town, where would I go? Barry smiled and raised a finger. I know just the place. There's a little diner called the Boatswain at Pier 32, and 1 o'clock p.m. would be the perfect time to try their chowder. It's to die for. Melody smiled and ran a finger through a lock of her two black hair. It's been a pleasure to meet the both of you. I sincerely wish you all the luck with your band. Now I need to be on my own. Thanks for your time. For the record, it was a great show tonight, Dusty said, clamping down on Barry's elbow and pulling him toward the door. There's one more thing, Melody said, just as Dusty and Barry moved into the hall. You might consider changing the name of your band. Uh, Sharkskin just isn't doing it for me. Thanks for the advice, Barry said. Good luck on the rest of your tour, Dusty said as she closed the green room door. The two of them stood outside the VIP green room staring at each other. What just happened? Dusty said. I don't know. We'll find out tomorrow, won't we? The two of them left the green room and headed to the venue's loading area to pick up their drum kits. Marblehead. Bass. Strictly punk chops. Marblehead. Born Marvello Testa. 
spent his youth attending the School of Performing Arts in New York City, where he earned a full-ride scholarship to the Juilliard School of Music, where he graduated with a master's degree in music geology, summa cum laude. He toured Europe extensively as first chair tuba before moving to second chair viola. He was the toast of the old school music aristocracy until by happenstance he attended a show in which Sid Vicious was playing in Eastern Western Southern Hoboken, E-West Soho. He instantly fell in love with the sound, threw a lifetime of teetotaling out the window, downed his first 3.5% beer, picked up a second-hand bass guitar from a third-hand thrift store in a fourth-hand neighborhood, and never looked back. He's played with a number of punk bands and hardcore bands since, including It Happens Every Tuesday, Elephantiasis, Random Punk Band, and Skinning Tuesday. This has been Blunderbusted, part one of four, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. As I mentioned earlier, I have roots in piracy. Rust Monster, the band in which I play, has two albums based on those cutthroats from the high seas. I thought I'd share one of my favorite Rust Monster songs— Each song from Rust Monster's pirate albums follows the tradition of those ancient tunes called sea shanties in that they tell stories. Pirates had a strict set of codes, very few of them politically correct. One such rule dictated that if any pirate snuck a woman onto the ship dressed as a man, he would dance the hempen jig, or in other words, be hung from the main yard. This rule came from the superstition that women aboard ship brought bad luck. I now give you, from Rust Monster, Hemp and Jig, from our album, Last Voyage of the Black Betty. Been sent to dance the hemp and jig. Slow to 
Thank you for joining me on this episode of Terrifying Lies, where the Jolly Roger flies high and one must keep a weather eye open. Stay tuned because part two of Blunderbusted will be coming at you soon. Until next time, I wish you sweet dreams 
or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review, or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible.